Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome. As always, that's my catchphrase. One time I didn't say it, and a few of my listeners reached out and said, Laura, are you feeling okay? You didn't do your usual entry to the show. And uh, I have no idea what happened that day, but uh, I said it today, and I want to thank all of you for listening and making this show one of the top 3% globally of all podcasts. What gets me the most, though, is your comments, your feedback, and even letting me know I didn't say something that I usually say that you missed. That tells me you're listening and I'm making a difference. This is Christmas week here in the United States, well, all over the world. But beyond that, it is a time of reflection for a lot of us. And I've been feeling pretty sad lately, and I almost canceled doing the show live today. But because of who my guest was, I knew that he would lift me up and that we would have a lot of fun. So I said, that's it. I'm just doing it anyway. So I am really glad that I get to um, introduce you to somebody that I met through my friend, Dina Moskowitz, who was on the show several weeks ago. We did a webinar together for SASMAX Partner Optimizer about brand and story and data in the tech world. And I loved what he had to say so much because it was a very unique perspective for me around brand and story and products and features and following and leading. And oh my God, we've got so much we're going to talk about. And I hope that you enjoy him as much as I do, both on a business and a personal level, because he just has a way about him that is really, really special. And my guest today, I haven't said his name yet, is Tucker Stein. At least I don't think I said his name yet. And, you know, he's worked with Fortune 100 companies, massive brands, helping them get their messaging clear. Beyond that, you know, he's really about brand architecture and leadership and developing that throughout an organization both with entrepreneurs and large corporate brands. So I'm just going to bring Tucker on right now so that you can have this conversation with him like I do. So Tucker, welcome. Hey, Laura. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's so great to, to talk to you again. You know, it, it's I had so much fun when we did the webinar for Sazmax Partner Optimizer when we were talking about B2B in the tech world. And just the prep that you and I did preparing for that blew me away. I mean, I'm sure this happens to you all the time. Well, I hope it does, but it, the conversation blew me away because it was so different than the traditional conversation about branding. And you said something that really stuck with me. You said, are you marketing as a product or as a brand? as a feature, not a benefit. And I know I've heard similar things, but for some reason that really stood out, Tucker. So can we talk about that and why you you pose that question? Absolutely. Um, you know, having been in this space for quite some time, I've been able to uh, see the trends. And I'm de definitely, even as a brand person, I'm a, a bit of a data geek. I, I love numbers and I love statistics and so forth. Um, and when I work with technology companies, business to business companies, there's this ongoing pattern that when they start to talk about the marketing message and the brand that they, you know, they sell, 
they get so focused and wrapped up in the product and the features, they forget to, to, to actually look about look at how their customers are feeling or making them feel or the problem they're actually solving. Um, so oftentimes I'll, I'll say that, you know, the more that you focus on the features of your brand, you're a sales company. But if you really focus on the benefits and the customer, you're a global brand. And that's the difference between, between the two. And, um, you know, there's, there's something to be said about um, human nature and the fact that when we get into sales and into business to business and we're selling products, that we forget that the people buying the products are human. And sometimes we get so involved in, in, you know, whatever phone that we have on us or device or whatever it is for instant gratification, we forget about the problem that we're solving, the pain points that we're trying to address and how we're making the customer feel. So one thing that I always, that I always say and, and we, we talked about was this, uh, my mentor in the industry said one thing to me, and this was probably, gosh, 30, almost 30 years ago. As humans, we buy on emotion and justify with logic. And that, for some reason, has stuck with me ever since. No matter what we're talking about, we're all still human first. And I think the power of what makes really good global brands do what they do is they remember the emotion. They remember the pain that the customer is facing. And that's what allows the features in the very end to be the closure of the deal. So that's that's a little bit about what we were talking about last time. Yeah. So, you know, this whole idea of emotion feels very marketed at, very advertising, very manipulative. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's not how you talk about brands, yet we often can see when somebody, well, maybe I'm a little more sensitive to it because of what I do for a living. Uh, But there are times I, I get people that send me emails trying to sell me stuff and they have these really long landing pages. And I feel that it's, it's an attempt to manipulate my emotion, but there's nothing behind the brand or the product. It's like a fake yeah. creation. Um, and, you know, I'm not really sure where the question is in there, but, You know, I have this concern that people can just try to use emotion to build their brand when there's not something substantive behind it. You bring up a good point, Laura, and and I'll answer the question without there being a question there. How about that? I appreciate it because it's like a thought roaming through my head. And 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 I've said this before, too, and I'm glad you touched on it. The longer the message, the more that you feel manipulated in the message the more often or not, they are confused about themselves. They don't know exactly what they're selling. At the end of the day, most products or companies, the way in which they market themselves, try to solve everything. They want to be everything to everyone. And the problem with that is you, if you try to be everything to everyone, you end up being nothing to no one. And that's a really that was really powerful for me to understand. Pick one particular pain point, one problem that you're trying to solve make the connection first, and then you're building a trusted relationship in order for you to say more. But if you just start spouting out all of this verbiage and all of this language, first of all, there's that, you know, the intention span of humans right now is so short, they're going to completely, you know, deny you right off the bat. But if you can walk in their shoes and address one particular pain point right off the bat and make that connection, you've already established trust and connection. And that's the most important thing you can do right off the bat. And yet it feels like 
so many brands nowadays fail in that trust and connection. I mean, let's just use um, one that we had talked about several weeks ago, um, Dancing with the Stars. Okay. I, I watched it <laughs> except for the last couple of years. Right. Um, when I lived in Connecticut and my parents lived in Florida, we literally talked through the entire show over the phone as the show's going on. It had built this trust factor with us. And then they fired the the host of the show and brought on a new host of the show who has made it very much about her and less about the the contestants per, per se. And then you have Jeopardy, who Alex Trebek, who was literally the face of that brand, passed away. And they put somebody else in who then got canceled due to something he had said or done in the past and it just rip roared up. I mean, there's all of this confidence and trust that can get broken in a second. And yet I go back to him thinking all this through. I remember growing up. Do you remember the Tylenol um, controversy a long time ago when somebody um, contaminated bottles of Tylenol. And this is before the safety seals and all that stuff needed to be done. So somebody had contaminated it. And everybody thought for sure that Tylenol could never recover from it. Instead, the president literally did a, a, a newscast saying, we've lost your trust. Mm-hmm. We're sorry. Here's what we're doing to fix it. I don't feel like there's that integrity level around the brands around trust anymore. I mean, am I wrong? No, I don't think you're wrong at all. And I think um, where brands um, end up falling short is they don't think through the solution all the way through. They're quick to make a fix if something goes wrong. Uh, They don't think about their watchers and their viewers or their end customers before they make decisions at the top. And, just as we've understood someone like a Tom Bergeron or an Alex Trebek, brands become people and people become the face of those brands. And at the end of the day, brand is not, you know, the name, the logo, the visual, or, you know, all those, it's what is the connection, the experience that you're having with a particular product or thing, the experience that you had with Tom Bergeron, he was all about understanding the dancers. He got vulnerable with their stories. He supported them when they were you know down and he supported them when they were up he, did, he went through all of the emotions as humans that we do to protect one another and support one another. When you get ego involved in a brand, that is the biggest downfall of any brand is ego. So if you put the wrong person in front of that brand and it's all driven by ego, then all of a sudden the brand completely loses its face. And I think one of the things that companies are really reluctant to do is fall on their sword or just be vulnerable enough to say, we were wrong. We're a company. We are human too. We make mistakes. The companies that become vulnerable enough to admit failure, but then recover and make, turn that into a success are the brands that test time. The ones that script the subject or try to avoid it, you know, put it under the carpet, whatever it is, those are the ones that are destined to fail. And that's what the power of vulnerability in brands has created this day and age. You know, with Brene Brown, you know, bringing all of her research to light on shame and vulnerability, we've now made it mainstream conversations, acceptable conversation to talk about vulnerability. It's now acceptable for people to fail and come back. And we look at all these celebrities or 
you know, that have gone into rehab or they've fallen off or whatever it is, but then they share their story with the world and all of a sudden we, we cheer them on. Um, Justin Bieber, of all things, is a perfect example of that, of someone who was a, a punk kid, did a lot of bad things. Nobody was watching out for him. He had all the money in the world and had absolutely no you know, emotional intelligence or control. But he has done a complete 180. And now people adore and love him for being so vulnerable and honest about his story and helping other young folks you know, step into a world of, of, of you know, emotional freedom. Right. Who would have thought? Those are the kinds of brands that allow us to be human or allow themselves to be human, that emotion first, logic second, allow the emotion to take the lead. And a lot of people say, oh, that just gets too mushy or too fluffy or whatever it is. There's nothing mushy or fluffy to me if you can make an emotional connection with your customer and be, create a loyalist for life. That is the best kind of relationship you can start. Can you ever be too emotional or too authentic or too vulnerable? Can that sort of backlash against a brand? That's the beauty of research and feedback, right? Okay. Um, brands that spend time, not just putting the emotion out there and hoping that it sticks, but if they're connecting with their customers and they're asking for, how did this make you feel? How did it make you act? What could we do, be doing differently? That kind of research feedback loop allows them to adjust the messaging as, as, as needed. So I always encourage brands that are um, sometimes far from their customer because they're going through multiple channels or whatever it is, get the feedback direct from the customer to understand what's working and what's not working. And it's okay to say, hey, if it's not working, let's change it. So yes, I think it's possibly to be over the top because sometimes over the top does create an or, you know, an unauthentic voice. But if you find the research and see if that's working, then you'll know. So I do think that there, there is a way to, to, to circumvent that if you do the research. Okay. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking through the whole idea of research and reaching out to the customers. Is there a good way to go about doing that if you've never done it before? I think, yeah. Well, and yes. And the answer is the most important question of that is meet where the customer's at, right? You don't want them to do the work. You're doing the work. So depending upon what kind of a brand you are, what kind of a product you're selling or what the customer journey looks like, the best way to do research is to be where the customer is at. So for a lot of retailers, sometimes, you know, that's directly in the store and, and making that person to person contact. If it's business to business and there's multiple channels, you're asking specifically whoever the customer facing connection is to the brand, allow them to conduct the research. So wherever the research is taking place to do it effectively, it needs to be where the customer is at because that's where the customer feels most comfortable and that's where they're interacting with your brand at that time. So if that makes sense to, you know, wherever the customer is interacting with your brand, that's where the research should be conducted. Okay. Now say you're not exactly sure where you're interacting with, which I know for both of us, it's like, okay, well, you need to know that. That's really important to know that. There's a lot of my listeners who do business through social media. They do business through um, maybe Amazon. They may have an Amazon store or an Etsy store. Or, you know, I have a lot of corporate listeners as well. It's a little easier for them to sort of have an idea where their, where their customers are. But 
like even for me with the podcast, I know who my listeners are when they reach out to me. Apple doesn't give us access to who's listening, who's subscribed, all those other pieces. What if you don't own your list of who they are to reach out to them? What would be your suggestion on how to begin learning how to reach out to them and perhaps where they are because owning yeah. your, your list is part of owning your brand. Right. Very good question. And there's a c- couple comments on that. So if you don't own the list or you don't have direct access, um, then hopefully you're building your brand in multiple platforms and social is a good way to go. Um, email. Um, you know, it's funny 10 years ago, we would have said email is the only way to connect with, you know, with people. And now it's like, mm, it's, you know, everyone's inbox is so flooded. Email marketing, email connection is even even more difficult. Social is a great way to do it. And in that social space, don't be afraid to be direct and vulnerable too. Um, you know, this is a case in point. Um, I saw a, a post uh, maybe a week ago. Um, it's the season of giving and giving back. We want to give back to um, our you know customers in 2022. What's one thing we could do better? That was their post. And they got over a thousand comments. Now, now all of them, some are going to be rants and raves, you know, all those kinds of you know complaints. However, there's probably some truth in looking at the data, analyzing those responses. If there's some common themes or things they hadn't thought about, what can they do? And then there's the thank you. There's that we listened and we understand. And this, these are the changes we're going to make. So you can actually have a dialogue with customers, even if you don't know where they are on social media. And I think that's one of the big things that is missing in social is that customers will engage, but the brand doesn't engage back. Oh, I hate that. It's pushing in that you and I talked about this in the last, the push versus pull effect, right? Right. Brands will push out their information. And if they don't engage, they're never going to pull the customers in. And that's the most important part of the marketing strategy is the pull marketing, not the push marketing. So that is a great way to engage with customers because customers will find you. They're brand loyal and they know if they've got an issue, they'll find you. But have that dialogue and be honest and open about it. And and social platforms, the two right now that are the hottest, uh, Instagram and TikTok. Um, I never thought in a million years at you know middle age, I'd say that I'd be on TikTok because <laughs> I thought it was, you know, whatever it is. Um, I was there just to monitor it for my kids and then realized that, you know, there's a lot of great information on there because it's it's quick content, it's video, and over 80% now of, of customers and consumers want their content consumed through video. So that's another, make sure that the medium that you're connecting with in your brand is creating the same kind of experience that the customer is expecting. So part of that is morphing the brand and, and, and looking at the ways in which you connect with customers on a yearly basis, because trends in digital right now are so quick to change, you've got to be ahead of the curve and understand where they're at. So that social media, that platform specifically, create a dialogue. It's not about selling products. It's about creating conversations. That was a really great point that you raised about, you know, the push-pull and creating the dialogue. Then why is it that so many brands just push out something and they want people to comment, but then they never bother acknowledging the comments. I mean, I I frankly have never been able to wrap my head around somebody throws a question out there from a brand or an author or somebody, right? And you, you answer it 
and in your answer is a question back to them mm-hmm. and nothing. Yeah. Nothing. I mean, it's the black hole right. of social media. And that's where some of those brands have gotten complacent and convenient. They just think that when they push something out, that that's all that they have to do. Um, branding is not an exact science, nor is it easy. It takes a lot of adjusting and, and changing and transforming um, because really, like I said, the brand is not a mark that stays on its own until you say, oh, let's let's adjust our logo. It's, it's time for a change. Nothing to do with it. It's the experience you're having with your customer. If the customers are changing, you better be changing. If you don't know what's happening with your customer, you are going to fail as a brand. So part of that is is, is creating the engagement because if there's not a bi-directional conversation, then you're making assumptions and assumptive marketing is is very dangerous and very risky. Make it 100% guaranteed marketing by knowing exactly what your customers are asking for. So I would say if you're not engaging and listening, you're going to fail. Okay, so let's define brand then in your words, how you define brand. Because in the last 20 minutes, we've talked about all different aspects of a brand. But we've never really defined it. And I know for me, it's very different than what it might mean to somebody else. Yeah. To me, brand is the connection, emotions, and experiences that you create between your customer and the product that you're selling. It's a set of experiences. It's a set of emotions. It's the relationship that you're building. So for me, brand is all about relationship building. I mean, that's, that's if I were to define it, brand is all about the relationship. Um, you may have an identity. Brand identity is your logo, but branding is the connection and the relationship and the journey that you're creating for the customer. All right. So then going back to the conversation about the Tom Bergeron's, the Alex Trebek's, all of those, what if that brand identity almost becomes bigger than the brand? How do you handle that when there's transitions properly to handle it? I mean, I know for my listeners who have salespeople, or uh, an owner that their name was the brand kind of thing. And now they're thinking about perhaps selling their companies and all of a sudden they need to take a back seat to try to build that brand up. So how does personal brand versus business brand vary? And how can you make sure that that doesn't have an impact or has a positive impact. There's lots of to unpack in there. Tucker, sorry about that. <laughs> Let me start at the top in the sense that, you know, for me in the way in which I look at brand for let's take dancing with the stars. It has nothing to do with the fact that it's a TV show. It has nothing to do with the fact of what network it's on or at this point, at this point in my conversation, who the host is at the end of the day, what people love about dancing with the stars is the brand, this set of experiences and emotions It allows them to disconnect from the day. People see dancing as a form of freedom and connection. It makes them happy. There's a lot of studies of the fact that dancing actually, even if you're not dancing, when you're viewing dancing, it elevates um, serotonin and, and, and the cortisol in your brain so that it allows you to actually feel better. People love celebrities and people love celebrities that are, you know, trying to do something different. And the way in which they connect with the customer at home is they bring them into the experience 
and allow them to judge for themselves. They create a culture around the happiness of dancing. That is the brand that it, that really exudes from Dancing with the Stars. Tom Bergeron is just one of the brand assets, so to speak, or the delivery of the brand. And he's allowing his own persona to accelerate the experiences that the customers are having with that brand. So I call him, I would call him a brand accelerator in the sense that if it was just the three judges, you know what, you don't have that. But the brand accelerator allows them to remind them of the experiences that, that they're having at home and what they can expect to be watching and how that makes them feel. But he does a really good job of addressing the range of emotions that come with dancing, the failures, the successes, the criticism, you know, the own personal stories of the dancers, all of that stuff. He's a, he's a brand accelerator and is facilitating those experiences with the customer. So that's why I would never define Dancing with the Stars as, as a television show about dancing. It really is more about allowing people at home to create some emotional freedom from the day that takes them away from all of their problems. And that's what that's what made it so successful. Very much Wheel of Fortune and uh, Jeopardy and all of those shows as well yep. allowed that. So those hosts and whatever are brand accelerators. Right. But you worry if that face changes uh, as to how to, if you make a misstep or something like that. Right. You know, it's funny, uh, something like a Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune, you know, we can sit there and say, oh, this is kind of silly, whatever, it's a game show. The reason why those shows accelerate so well and have done so well for so long is it's tapping into an audience whose um, their brains always want to be challenged. And for some people, when their brain is challenged, that makes them feel happy. So I'm going back to the happiness quotient. So those shows were designed for people that don't like to sit. They don't, they get restless very easily. They want to challenge themselves. So even though we see it as a, you know, classified as a game show, there it's brain exercises for individuals that constantly need their brain to be tested. Um, and that's why it's been on for so long because there's a huge population of individuals that love to keep their brain super active. Um, it keeps them comfortable. It keeps them sane. It keeps them emotionally regulated. Otherwise, the other distractions that are mindless end up getting more anxiety in their brain. And for a lot of people, those shows are actually calming. All right. So let's extrapolate that out a bit. Mm -hmm. For my listeners that are building their brands around their products, around their messaging, whatever it may be, what are some tips for them to begin finding that emotional connection between their products, their features, their whatever, to their audiences? So great, great question. And a lot of this even comes before product development. It's in the R&D stage, if you're actually still trying to think about what the product might be. The best question to answer is, what is the problem I am trying to solve? Okay. That is the number one question. Because if you can't answer that, then you haven't created a demand necessarily for a market to adopt it. If there is a problem that you're trying to solve, then it's demanding some sort of a solution, which then, of course, becomes a product of some sort. So if you're in this phase of, you know, uh, so that comes with what one other question is, do you know who your customer is? And that customer avatar has to be clearly defined. It's not everybody. If you think your customer is everybody, um, then you're wrong. Even when, when Apple introduced the iPhone, 
it was not for everybody. It was not for everybody. It was meant for certain individuals that were looking, they were looking for the creators. They were looking for the imaginarians, right? These people that were looking to really do. And then it caught on and they saw the demand of what the world was looking for. And then the product evolved over time to be mainstream consumer. So you got to think about one, who the actual audience is, what is the pain point and the problem you're trying to solve? That is the best thing you can do. You can't create an emotional connection if you haven't established what that pain point is or the problem that you're trying to solve. I watch Shark Tank a lot. Okay. And I've been watching it since it first came out. I mean, I even talked about Shark Tank in my book and one of the things that comes up very often recently is COVID, right? Mm -hmm. And how some brands and some products took off during COVID and that there's, I mean, let's, let's use Peloton as an example, right? Mm -hmm. Peloton went through the roof during COVID as did a number of other um, brands for home fitness. Mm -hmm. As people are getting out more, those products aren't selling as well. Is Mm -hmm. it because of, you know, they've basically inundated the market and there's not that big a group to sell into, or is it because they never really created that emotional connection to keep the brand going? Now, granted, Peloton has had some hits um, to their to their brand integrity, to their brand ability. I mean, the reboot of Sex in the City did not help them the other day when the Chris Noth character dies after doing a Peloton run and they specifically called out Peloton and then Chris Noth being brought up on whether they're true or not charges of sexual issues with some women. A lot of missteps kind of happening, but how does somebody who perhaps built a brand during COVID, Tucker, mm-hmm. who it just took off because it just happened to be, okay, somebody needed that thing, yeah. keep a brand going or course correct to now go, all right, I, I need to do more than just make sure that this widget is available, my earplugs. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a good example of, um, you know, COVID. I was Amazon would be another one that, you know, that online shopping and so forth. But what Peloton, and you think about this, um, Peloton doesn't make their money necessarily off of product sales. They make it off the membership, right? Massive. So yeah. at the end of the day, it's one of those things where they bought the product for the exercise. They stay with the product because of the community. And what Peloton did brilliantly is it wasn't just a one-on-one relationship with a trainer that's in front of you and you're doing your, it created friends. You connect with your friends. It's a social, Peloton is actually social media exercise is what it is. It brought people together. It created competition. It allows you to go explore parts of the world on a bike that you'd never seen before and you can't travel to. Um, It created masterclasses. It created, you know, a point system. It, It literally they could probably not sell any more Peloton bikes ever again and still keep people and make a lot of money because people are so engaged. I know that because my wife is one of them. Um, and <laughs> okay. it comes, you know, and, and just like other substances, exercise can become an addiction. So when you're tapping into a specific 
pain point or, you know, part of what America faced is a lot of our addictive behaviors came out in COVID and Peloton was able to capture, not saying they're captured an addiction, they captured a need in the market for people to find an outlet to exercise. So at the end of the day, they were able to sell amazingly, but the membership, the recurring revenue that they get from the memberships is what drives people. People can't leave Peloton, right? The same way people can't cancel a gym membership. It's like people are absolutely attracted to the community that they've built. And Peloton's a, a, a beautiful example of that. Amazon, another thing. At the end of the day, even though COVID forced a lot of us to do online shopping, it has become so freaking convenient to oh, buy yeah. on Amazon. There could be no more virus, no nothing. And Amazon will still continue because at the end of the day, I go on my phone, anything I want in the world, I tap on it. And sometimes it shows up the same day, next day, or within a week. And my life is great, especially with gas prices at over $5 here in California. Okay. Oh, so, wow. So you're tap, I know, five thirty nine right now. Oof, um, for regular? Uh, five oh nine for regular. Oh, wow. But if you think about it, that's, you know, yes, you can accelerate during crisis because there's another pain point or demand in the market. But it's what you do to maintain the brand's experiences and emotions and connections that make it survive. If Peloton did not create the membership model and the, and the added features of friends and challenges and this and that, it might be a completely different story because people love, you know, now we're missing all the human connection. Now you can connect with your friends while exercising because most people don't like to exercise. Now you're creating a social media platform through exercise brilliant. Okay. So looking at that, they obviously had planned that some brilliant brand person, which I could picture you being behind that Tucker, (laughs) you know, help them formulate that. Okay. It's not about the bicycle. Mm -hmm. It's not about the treadmill. It's not about that. It's about that community that we're building. So basically soul cycle in your home kind of thing, which I guess SoulCycle never grabbed onto that when they should have. Their brand yeah. sort of didn't they, see that leap like Sears. They kept it a retail environment and not an at-home. Yeah. Right. Sort of like Sears, who you, who created the catalog industry, mm-hmm. failed because they couldn't pivot back Yeah. when the world started going that way again. That's a whole nother brand conversation yeah. that I go into so often. Exactly. Okay. So I've got my listeners out there who I have a lot of listeners who are in the tech industry. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they had businesses that repaired computers, installed computers, maintained environments, set up cybersecurity and all that stuff. Businesses massively took off because of the change from office to home. Mm -hmm. Now they're trying to figure out the hybrid to back to the office. What's that going to look like? How do our how do we keep our revenues more stable mm-hmm. with our brand? When is this uh, a blip? Is it not a blip? So how do you determine taking the conversation we just had around the Peloton and some other things? How do you determine if the crisis? created a new trend for your brand that's not going to change or if that's just a blip perhaps in the early stage you need to 
deal with and then go back to a different conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah, sort of I, putting it? The, yeah. And I think the easiest way for me to answer that, not having a specific technology in place, but you know, cybersecurity is one of them. Don't treat what COVID did as a trend. Treat it as the fact that COVID gave you, and here's the silver lining of COVID, right? Treat it as the fact that the crisis created a brand expansion, right? It okay. expanded the brand versus pivoted the brand. And even though you had to pivot, the I would say the biggest thing is because a lot of things shifted remotely or at home, the remote workforce isn't going away. In fact, 65% of Americans are looking for a new job because they don't want to go back to the office. So the concept of remote cybersecurity, remote this, or whatever it is, remote this isn't a trend. It's here to stay. So instead of treating the pivot as a trend or just a, a blip, so to speak, it's your brand expansion and make sure that you address it and don't lose the service of it. Cause then you'll, 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 you know, you've captured a huge market share. You don't want to lose that market share, but then go back to what you, your bread and butter, what you did really, really well and recreate that experience all over again. So now you, instead of shifting the brand over to one and coming back to the other, you're actually expanding into two to two areas. And I think that's where a lot of brands are going to be able to capture both parts of the market. Does that, does that answer your question? It, it does, but I need, I need a little expansion on it. Yeah. So here's what, here's what I'm thinking when you were just saying that. So COVID didn't necessarily create a blip. And of course, my brain went to Marvels and the Avengers and the blip when people disappeared for five years when they were fighting Thanos and then they, <laughs> they came back and, and the, you know, that was called the blip those five years. Right? Yeah. Anyway, um, sorry, my brain goes into strange places sometimes, Tucker. <laughs> Pop culture, you know, it just sort of ties everything together. I find that some brands, and I'm trying to think of one very specifically, well, even industries, they go, well, this is just a blip. It was just a pivot we needed to make. Everything's going to go back to normal. Masks are going to go away. I mean, there was a news report the other day. Somebody was upset because Highlights Magazine, which here in the U.S., mm -hmm. I mean, it was in every dentist's office. You yeah. read Highlights Magazine as a kid. It portrayed real world, but in a way that made it approachable, right? Some mother complained because they showed kids with masks in Highlights Magazine. And the brand response was totally dead on that we've always shown the reality of the world and don't shield our kids from it. The mother wanted them to shield the kids from this reality they'd been living for almost two years. So at what point do you say this is the normal, even if COVID is conquered, we're never going back to where we were in January of 2000 before mm -hmm. we knew this? 2020. I mean, not 2020. I mean, how does a brand decide, Tucker? I mean, that this is this is now normal and we're not going back. I find that I get that question so much from people and I get really annoyed when I hear people say, well, we're going to be going back to normal. It's like, hey, people, after almost two years of this, this is normal. Yeah. It's a really touchy subject. And I think, unfortunately, a health crisis has turned political for, for a lot of, you know, right. for, for many reasons. 
And one of the, so somebody else, you know, asked me about this in terms of how do you market around COVID? It's going to be case by case, depending upon what kind of brand and what kind of product you're selling. But I think what doesn't help is if, and let's face it, social media has empowered people that wouldn't normally speak anything to <laughs> raise, raise their voice. There's going to have to be, and, and a lot of companies are doing this, hiring individuals on their team that specifically are focused on conversation, where they only create, their, their job is to create conversation, address comments, address complaints, whatever it is, be, be engaged. Um, I always say don't, don't give in to the, the fear that it's creating around it, but okay. continue to stay in the positive that your brand brings. And I'm not saying ignore it, but continue to focus on the positivity that you stand for. The moment that you try to combat or take a stand or whatever it is, that just creates an opportunity for the trolls to come out and literally create all sorts of image issues. Okay. So it's a tough subject, but I don't like to say going back to the, the, the or even say the new normal, this is just what it is. Um, and I don't think there's going to be a return to wherever we were two years ago ever again um, because of the way in which the world now sees the COVID issues. It has become so polarized that it's just created a lot of division. So I always say, try to focus, go back. The only When I say go back, go back to the problem that you're still trying to solve. Go back to the connection that you made with your customers before and don't change it. Don't waver from it. The moment you try to be trendy or address a certain population that's upset, that's when you start to really disintegrate the brand connection. Okay. Focus on what you do best. All of that other stuff, because it, it's the old thing that you teach your kids. You know, if, if you want the bully to go away, don't react. Right. <laughs> it's kind of like that same thing where it's like, right. let's focus on you. We're not here to combat COVID. You know, that's not what we're here to do. What we are here to do is to service our customers the best way that we can. And that's still to continue to do what we do best, create a positive conversation and continue the the, the customer journey in a positive direction. So that's my easy. That's my. I like that. That's good. Because otherwise you're going to you're going to you could spend your entire day every day focusing on the small population that's trying to create havoc. Okay. All right. I, I think that's a, a beautiful way uh, of putting that. And I can unpack so much in that, but I'm going to make a shift because we're getting close to yeah. the the end of the show. And I think it's, well, I don't know if it's important, but it's important to me as I'm now 58 years old. So I'm of a certain generation because I deal with so much in cybersecurity and no friends in it. I refuse yeah. to do TikTok. Yeah, um, totally understand brand deal with generational issues if they've had a very loyal following for a long time they know who their customers were and now they're like well that customer is aging out or somebody is starting a new brand and they want to make sure that they constantly have a new influx yeah. of potential customers while they're still appealing to their existing client base. How do you 
recommend somebody start talking about that conversation? It's a, it's a good one because succession planning, especially in, in the United States, is, is going to be a challenge because there is such a disconnect between, you know, today's older generation of leadership and, and, and the younger millennial, you know, mindset, so to speak. Um, the, the number I used when I spoke to you last, 50% of the world's population is 25 and under. So if you want to succeed, you have to find a way in order to address um, incoming generations, because just like I, I always equate it to on a smaller scale, or, or let's fast track the scale, a college football coach, right? They've got their players three, maybe four years tops, and they know they're on to the next. So they have they have to adapt, and that's unfortunately why you know they they move around so much. But they have to adapt. They know their 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 own customer, their, the players are going to be out of there already. So they're constantly having to see what's what's ahead of them. Where's the talent coming from? What you know? What's what's happening? Um, I know there's a lot of people that say I'm not going to go on TikTok or I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. At the end of the day, it still goes back to that question of the customer journey, and you have to identify if your customer is aging out, then you should expect whatever brand or product to age out with it. If you if you're able to adapt and create a new conversation with an incoming generation, then your brand can continue. And it may not be on a TikTok, it may, it may be other kinds of things, depending upon what your brand is, but that's where the research comes into play. And that's where you ought to make sure that in succession planning, product succession planning, that you're addressing the needs of the new market. Um, I'm working with a gentleman and his whole TEDx talk is going to be around why the Fortune 500 may fail because they don't understand succession planning because they're not addressing <laughs> The issues happening with the new, you know, newer generations. Right. So it is case by case based on, you know, the product that you're selling. But I highly recommend you look at because you're right. If you're if if your audience is aging out and you're not don't have a succession plan in place, expect the brand to age out because you have to evolve and grow. Otherwise, the brand is going to it's going to pass away. Yeah. I mean, you and I talked about in previous conversations, Subaru and Volvo and how they're changing their brand and doing that succession planning conversation. They're appealing to their existing customer base by saying, pass it on to your child. And they're appealing to that gener the millennial and younger generations by showing the Subarus going up to a mountain where they can have their own adventures and off the beat, which fits a lot with right. COVID well, and, and with nomadic. Volvo. Yeah. And Volvo the same way. Here's the great thing about Volvo and they're in a good space. They represent safety. I mean, that's when people think about a safe car, they think Volvo. So safety doesn't change amongst generations. Safety is always going to be an issue. So they have that mindset of understanding safety. What does change is design. So what they've done is they've re-engineered a lot of their designs to fit next generation, but they've kept the safety in there. So that's an example of a brand who understands the core value of safety, but is adapting to new generations by looking at design and, and convenience and the way in which you experience the vehicle is very different than when you experienced it, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Perfect. Perfect. And we're going to um, sort of end with that thought because I know you backed up right to another meeting, but Tucker, I want to make sure people can find out how to reach you websites, contact information, because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that have a lot of questions because you have a very unique way about talking about branding. Thank you. 
I appreciate that. Yes. If, if anyone would like to uh, have a discovery session or learn a little bit more, you can simply go to tuckerstein.com and Stein is spelled S-T-I-N-E, a little bit different spelling than normal. So tuckerstine.com. And uh, there's a place where you can sign up there. Thank you, Laura. Um, and I'm happy to connect and, and see how I can support you. Um, and uh, I'm available for in-house and freelance. So just let me know what your, uh, what your availability is. I'm happy to support. And you also help people prep for TED Talks, it sounds like. Yeah, well. so part, yeah, because of my branding background, I do a lot with personal brand. Uh, and a lot of personal branding comes with the ability to speak and do public speaking. And my background happens to be helping organize TEDx events. So I have a background in public speaking training, uh, as well as helping people in their own personal brands. A lot of burnt out execs or entrepreneurs that want to really establish themselves. Uh, that's what I focus a lot on the personal brand side of things. And we never even got into that conversation because there was just so that's, that's the next that's the next episode. We'll do a whole thing on personal brand. Okay. All right. I'm in. Well, let's plan that for yeah. the new year. Let's talk about personal branding and TED Talks and all that stuff. I would love to do that. Thank Perfect. you so much for being here. And you know, I said Thanks at the beginning of the show that I was feeling really sad, but I really wanted to do this show because it was you and you just you always manage to lift me up, engage my brain, and just make me feel good. So thank you, Tucker. Thank you for that. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. I, I love having Tucker on. I, I'm so glad that Dina Moskowitz introduced me to him to help do a webinar for Sazmax Partner Optimizer um, on power of story and brand and for me, what it is about brand is, as Tucker said, it's about emotion. It's about connecting to your audience and being less about the thing and more about the why behind it and so much more and being vulnerable. So I hope today you got some, some new perspectives, some new questions and ways of thinking about brands for your business and perhaps even for your personal brand, which... As we just decided, Tucker and I are going to do a whole other episode just on all of that. At the end of the day, though, the right questions can change your life and the right people to ask them to. So I hope this show gives you a new perspective on things. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week, that you find somebody who makes you smile and laugh like Tucker has done for me today. And just have a wonderful rest of your day, everyone. Have a great day. You've been listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today.